online if you can hear us on the main camera. I know there were issues with that uh, during the singing. If there remain issues or if your phone doesn't work, there is another option. We can call it the organ cam. So you should have two live feeds uh, available to you on the church webpage, either the organ cam if you want this angle of me, although I think the straight on angle is maybe the better one for me. Is this my good side or, or is this my good side, right? So uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm not used to being on camera. My makeup and hair crew, you know, they were, they were not out or not up for it today. So, all right. For those of you who braved the risks and hazards of being here and those who are joining us online, welcome to Kahului Baptist Church. The title of the sermon is Beauty and the Beast, Part 2. Beauty and the Beast, Part 2. The way I figure things, there's two things that are notable. First of all, since many of our church members are at home and have everything they need, I can go long today. Amen? The second thing is my phone is being used, and that is normally my timekeeper. So I will not know how long I am going. So we are going long today. Yes, yes. Uh, and due to the recent developments of the coronavirus on our island, last night we had our first confirmed case on Maui. Uh, and then, of course, there was a couple that flew to Kauai. So uh, as things ramp up here for our community, I'll be uh, speaking with Pastor Bill later to talk about what the new information means for our services. Uh, potentially, we will cancel services for two weeks entirely and be exclusively online, which means I can come to you from a remote area. Should be fun. Um, or uh, we'll do a hybrid of some sort. But just be advised now, and we will let you know either way what the verdict is in the, weeks, uh, in the days to come. Uh, whether we'll cancel entirely for a season or not as we see how this develops. But stay tuned in uh, and just know that is a possibility. Whatever you do, no matter what, we want you, we want you to do what you need to do to be safe and to feel safe for you and your ohana. If you are high risk, some of you, my seniors in here who I love dearly, if you are high risk or uh, or considered vulnerable for whatever reason. Maybe you are prone to respiratory infections. Maybe you are prone to pneumonia or these types of things. Uh, we do encourage you to take extra precautions, or if you live with somebody like that, take extra precautions and know we love you. That is what we do out of love for neighbor. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, during a, a fire, um, this is my prop right here for later, uh, during a fire, you'll see how this comes into play. Um, Charles Spurgeon, during a fire, he had some people in his church die, and, and that was one of the most bitter things for him in his whole ministry. He said it almost made him quit, the thought that, man, if, if, if I could have done more to protect the people in my church, more to protect the flock of the church, um, I could have done more. I should have done more. That, that loomed over his ministry his whole life. And so uh, we want to take every available measure here to protect you, to protect your ohana, uh, to protect the community insofar as we are able and wise. And so uh, those are some things we are working on. Stay tuned in. Enough of that. Let's shift now to Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. None of that counts for sermon time. 
We've been working through Daniel. This is part two in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. This is his testimony we saw last week of what God had done. This is what he wrote, Nebuchadnezzar, after God humbled him greatly. Last week we saw the introduction to this section and the superiority of the kingdom of God and the scope of the message of God to the nations as this section is at the very heart of chapters 2 through 7. This is the pinnacle of Daniel's message in Aramaic so all nations could hear what God has to say through Nebuchadnezzar and over the kings of Babylon and eventually Persia as well. This week, this week, we will see a true response of repentance and humility. So a true response of repentance and humility is more than lip service, is more than mere lip service, and it proves itself, it shows itself in surprising and convicting ways. And so let's pray, and this prayer is going to be a little bit different, as I have been asked uh, by other Southern Baptist entities and heads, the Hawaii Pacific Baptist Convention has called all of the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention all across the state and across the world to pray, to join together on Sunday morning and to pray over this matter impacting our nation. And so that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to pray as we were asked for four things. So let's pray. Number one, Father, in your mercy, we beseech you and ask that you would stop the spread of this virus and the pandemic. If it would please you and show you to be glorified, would you stop it in an instant, in a way that shows and can only be attributed to the prayers of your people and the power of your hands. Father, we pray that you would stop it in Maui, we pray that you would stop it in the state of Hawaii. We pray that you would stop the spread around the world, and especially in places that are ill-equipped medically to handle the volume of the sick. Father, so we ask, that's the first thing we ask you to stop it. The second thing we come and ask you to do, Father, is we ask you and we lift up our president. We ask that you would give him and other leaders in our nation, in the globe, in our state, in our county, we pray that you would give them wisdom to act in the, for the good of the community. Give them wisdom, the needed factors that they have to juggle are many. Would you help them? We even pray for members of our own church right now, this second, who are helping in the county. Would you give them stamina, perseverance? May their wisdom be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. May they be ten times wiser than all the other wise men to the glory and praise of Jesus. Father, we ask not only for wisdom, but we ask, as you have told us, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We ask that you would help us to see the fragility of life, and as such, that we would turn wholeheartedly from things that distract us from this race to serve the living and true God. And then, Father, lastly, we pray for our missionaries. We pray for the work of the gospel, that it would not be hindered, but that it would be expedient among the nations and across the globe. We pray that many in every corner of the globe would hear of Jesus and believe because of this. 
And so, Father, would you do that this morning? Do that uh, here as the gospel is preached. May you stir us to action and call us, move us with hearts of love for your glory and for our neighbor to tell them this great news. We ask this with all the other churches of the Southern Baptist Convention that we partner with. We come in unison and ask this and let all God's people say amen. Amen. All right, two points this morning. Number one, Daniel's dismay and Daniel's delivery. Number one, Daniel's dismay and Daniel's delivery. Verse one, we'll cover the whole section, verse 19, or this set first, first point, we'll cover all of the first section up through 26, verse 19 through 26. And here, last week we saw Nebuchadnezzar said he had another bad dream. This is another disturbing dream in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Now this week, we're going to see what that dream means. And here's the gist of it. Basically, God tells Nebuchadnezzar through this vision of a tree that's great and beautiful and wonderful and magnificent, that's branches, its height extends to the top of the heavens, and its branches, it can be seen from the ends of the earth, and it provides shade and shelter for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and then it gets cut down. The branches are lopped off, the leaves are stripped, and it's just left as a stump. God essentially tells the king Nebuchadnezzar in all of, for all of his might, for all of his strength, for all of his glory that he would be driven from among men, that his mind would become like an animal, that his glory and dignity would be stripped. Any sense of pride or superiority is going to be upended as he lives outdoors and acts like an animal, eating like one too from the grass. Now, in our culture, there are many, one of the most famous ones today, like Kanye West. Anybody ever heard of Kanye West? Yes. Kanye West, a singer, rapper. Others like him, in addition to him, would look at this passage with Nebuchadnezzar, and they would say this is a form of mental illness. They would attribute this to some form of mental illness in our day. Certainly, if Nebuchadnezzar were to go into a counselor or to be in in this day, certainly, without a doubt, he would be diagnosed with mental illness. However, I don't think this is worthy of the term mental illness at all. I'm going to go on record and say I don't think this is worthy of the term mental illness as we use it in our culture at all. Daniel is clear This is not mental illness, this is judgment. This is not a bout of of falling into temporary insanity. This is a divine decree of judgment for sinful oppression and pride propagated by the king. All of it, his sinful oppression, his, his unrighteous practices, which we'll talk about in a minute, all of it is rooted in a heart of pride, which begs the question for us today, This will be controversial. I wonder how much of what is classified as mental illness today owes to a refusal to submit to God and worship him. I'm not saying all of it, 
But I'm saying some of it is worth considering how much of what is considered mental illness flows from a heart that refuses to submit to God's will and worship him, either in the body, the mind, or both. Whatever that is, we'll talk about that perhaps more later. At the very least, at the very least, we should note that sinning with the mind and the body has consequences on both. Sinning with the mind and the body has consequences on both. But for now, let's just note, this is an unmistakable judgment of God rendered against Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that's what's going to happen to him. How long is it going to be? The text tells us for how long? Seven periods of time. Seven periods of time. Now, how long is seven periods of time? Most, most would say seven years. However, the text isn't clear. You say, wait, what? What do you mean? Because this is just a period of time. There is a word for year. This is not the word. Is it seven days, seven months, seven years, or something else? Well, we know it's not seven days because after seven days, my fingers don't look like eagles. Uh, my hair doesn't grow and look like eagles' feathers and claws, and, and I don't have super long hair after seven days. I don't have any hair, no matter how long I grow it, except in the face. So we know this is longer than a few days. We know it's longer than a few weeks. But how long is it? Is it meant to be a literal seven-year period? Or, here we go again, is it figurative for a complete time of judgment? Seven years. A sufficiently complete time period for Nebuchadnezzar to learn his intended lesson. Now, some of you say, well, that's just silly. Obviously, it would seem to be seven years. That would be the, the next natural time. But I beg to differ. Let me give you a few reasons why. First, we have the repetition of the term seven periods of time. He says it several times, not just once. Nowhere does he ever say seven years so that we can see, ah, this is what you mean by that. He never does that. He just repeats the phrase. He never specifies it when he could have very easily. The next point that I would give you for your consideration is that Daniel has already used seven figuratively within earshot of this passage. In chapter 3, 19, you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were thrown into the furnace, and it was heated how many times hotter? Seven times hotter than it's usually heated. Daniel's already used this phrase figuratively to show that it was heated to its max capacity. It's a completion to the fullness that it could be. I might suggest to you that the figurative understanding of seven periods of time, a complete period of judgment, long enough for Nebuchadnezzar to learn his lesson, but not necessarily seven literal years. And I think the author doesn't want us to get bogged down on that. Now, those who insist on seven years, there are some who are like, no, it's seven years, it really is, and they'll get really upset generally do so because this is going to be important later in chapter 7 and chapter 9. Those who insist on this being a seven-year period, hold on to that because in chapter 7 and chapter 9, we come to this time, what they call the three-and-a-half-year reign of the little horn or the Antichrist. 
also given in the, the formula a time times and half a time. We're going to talk about that later, but they would look at here and they'd say uh, in chapter 7 and 9, and they say, oh, look, time here is year. Time equals year. And so we do time, one year, times two years, half a time, half a year, three and a half years. The Antichrist is going to reign for three and a half. And so they're, they're trying to hold on to a end times belief structure that I do not believe the text supports. And so they insist that this is seven years. I'll point out a different take on those passages that, in my opinion, does more justice to the text, to history as a whole, and to the New Testament role of the church when we get there. When are we going to get there? September and October. So you got to stick around. You got to stick around. But for now, I just want you to see the text supports a figurative rendering. Does it demand it? No, it does not demand it. But does it support it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Could it be seven years? It could be seven years. Context is king, is the clue. We'll talk more about that in chapter 7 and chapter 9. The text says Daniel was alarmed and dismayed. So the king tells Daniel the dream. This time he tells him the dream. The first time he had to guess it. The king tells him the dream. And it says Daniel sits there quietly for some time. He's alarmed in the thoughts of his mind. He's dismayed. He's upset because Daniel knows what it means. Now, don't you find that striking? Here's Daniel living under the oppression of the king, literally a victim of human trafficking at the hands of this king and his administration. And now he comes and he's been serving and suffering and been had the death penalty waved over them several times. It's about to happen again. And now the king gets a vision from God that says he is going to be more or less chopped down and humbled. I would think if I'm Daniel, I've got a little bit of excitement. Like, it's about time. Yeah, the king is going to be humbled, and we're going to see our God come to the rescue now. I would think there'd be an element of rejoicing on Daniel's part, on this wicked king who brought so much pain into my life, so much hardship. I don't even know my homeland because he took us away. It's been decades since Daniel's been home. And now it seems like justice is about to get meted out a little bit. I would think this would be cause for rejoicing. But that's not what Daniel does, is it? He sits there alarmed, disturbed at what this means for the king. Daniel knows better. He knows his Bible. And we do well to do the same. Daniel knows scriptures like Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26 through 28. Genesis 1 says that all men, no matter their race, no matter their ethnicity, their sin struggles, all people, men, women, red, yellow, black, and white, all are made in the image and likeness of God. Daniel knows that, including Nebuchadnezzar. He knows also that because God's law commands his people to care for their enemies, that God rebukes those who, suffer, who rejoice over the suffering of their enemies. Daniel knows the Proverbs. Think about this, Proverbs 24, 17. Proverbs 24, 17, he says this. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. 
Daniel knows the Proverbs. He, he knows Proverbs 25, 21. It says this, chapter 25, verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. These Proverbs, are, are, they're worth an entire sermon. Daniel knows what it says. Love your enemies. Do, be kind to them. Help them. Don't rejoice when they struggle. That's worth an entire sermon. But for now, Kahalui Baptist Church and those tuning in online, I have to get used to talking to cameras, those online. For now, let me say this. If you find more joy in being right than in being merciful and actually helping the suffering under the consequences of their sins, you need to hear the words of these Proverbs. If there's a little smirk when you see that you're right, rather than an urging to help others in need, you need to heed this lesson. It is generally difficult to help others when you feel morally superior to them. It is generally difficult to be actually helpful in times of need when you feel morally superior to them. See, we can never forget that any righteousness that we possess, any goodness that we have, is what uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, would call an alien righteousness. We possess an alien righteousness that's ours only, only by virtue of our union with Christ, the true righteous one. It's not inherent from us. It's attributed to us by faith in Christ. See, the biblical picture of human beings made in the image and likeness of God. The biblical picture is that human life is so sacred, it's so valuable, that not only can you not murder another human being, you can't even speak a cursing against them because they are made in the image of God. James chapter 3, verse 19. Sorry, that's 3.9. You can't even curse your fellow human being, without assaulting the glory of their creator. Daniel knew, knew this, knows this, and he is alarmed. He is dismayed at what this means for Nebuchadnezzar. And so, Daniel tells him the dream and its meaning, and then he gives him a message. He delivers a message, number two, Daniel's delivery. Daniel's delivery, point two. I want to read verse 27 and hear Daniel's message for the king, and he doesn't let him off easy. Daniel chapter 4, verse 27, and it says this. Ah, if I can get it there. Daniel 4, 27, he tells to the king, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there perhaps may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel gives him bad news. He tells the king, this is you. And then he delivers a message. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. What a message to give to the king.
causes the king to break off his sins. And so, the first thing we see is that calling somebody to repentance is good news. Do you believe that this morning? Calling others to turn from their sins and turn to Christ is good news fundamentally. Why is it? Because what does he say? That your prosperity may perhaps be lengthened. It's calling them to life. To call others to break off sin is calling them to life. And so hear this. If you view the scriptures, the, the moral ethics of the Bible as something to be embarrassed by, or if you view God's law as drudgery, something that hinders joy, you're going to have a hard time calling others to repent. Right? If you view, oh, God's word, I got to obey God. Oh, I just, I really want to have fun, though. If you view God's word as drudgery, you will see calling others to repentance as bad news. But if you see it as preserving life, protecting joy, increasing flourishing, then you will see it as good news and you will call others to it. And here we see Daniel boldly, lovingly calls the king to repentance and to life. See, Daniel could have, I would just think, he could have just delivered the interpretation, couldn't he? The king wants to know, what's the dream mean? Daniel sits there, okay, here's the, here's the meaning, king. Have a good day. I mean, um, God bless. No, he's not going to do that. Anyways, just see you. Bye. Right? He could have just delivered the message and dug out. But Daniel takes the opportunity in love to call the king to repentance. Beloved, you need to hear this. God's law, the standard of holiness that God calls us to live to, is to protect our joy. It is to protect our joy and enhance it. And so Daniel tells the king to repent, to break off his sins and his iniquities. Now, undoubtedly, King Nebuchadnezzar, if you were to log his list of sins, they would be great, many, and large. He has many major sins. Let's just think of the ones we know of. Let's just list a few. Greed murder, idolatry, sexual immorality, theft, robbery, blasphemy, that's not just the law, that's the Bible, oppression, abuse of power, furious anger, human trafficking, and many, many, many more things to the list that Nebuchadnezzar alone has done. So, Please hear this, when you read those sins, those, that phrase from Daniel, break off your sins, he's talking about this king's whole life. This is no small matter. All of these things boil down to a root of pride in Nebuchadnezzar's life, the desire to be God, to define reality, ultimately to be his own king to be remembered on the pages of history and to be praised by men. That is what it all boiled down to. So another point we need to hear this morning, KBC, is a little striking. This, seg this segment of the sermon, everybody at home, online, 
and all of us in here need to get ready for it, right? People who want to make their life count, and I think all of us here do a lot. I want to make my life count. People who want to make their life count, who want to do something significant or make a difference in the world, yet if they are unwilling to be faithful and obedient in small things or seemingly insignificant areas are no different ultimately than Nebuchadnezzar. We only betray the true motive of the heart, which is not to honor God, but to make a name for themselves. Put more simply, if you want to do big things for God, but you aren't faithful in small things for God, there's a good chance you just want to make a name for yourself. Pride is sneaky. Pride is a shape-shifting sin. Even as we say, I want to do this for God, we are doing this for God, we simultaneously want people to know that we are doing this for God. I am doing this for God, you see? See how different this is, how sneaky it is? I think all of us in here, if we're honest, though our outward sins look different, we're really no different than Nebuchadnezzar are we? We're really no morally superior to him than anybody else. And Daniel's words to us are likewise to be piercing. He tells the king, break off your sins. That means exactly what it sounds like. Break off from him, tear him away, be ripped apart from your sins and iniquities. Who does that sound like? Does that sound like anybody else in the Bible? Or Jesus? How does Jesus tell us to wage war against sin? He says, pluck out your eye. Cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. There's no other way to wage victorious war over our sin. There's no other way except for radical amputation. Now, this guy right here, <clears throat> this is a cool cane. Somebody dropped off a number of canes. If you need a cane, they're in the back. There's about four of them. They're all like this. They're pretty cool. This one's mine. You can't have it. So now there's three. Um, but this is pretty cool. Now, <clears throat> if I was Nebuchadnezzar and I heard Daniel say, break off your sins. Now, I'm going to break this. You ready? I'm going to break it apart. You ready? I think this is cool. Almost. Wow. Now, I, I want to break off my sin. So here's my sin. Let me, let me do that again, all right? I'm going to break it off. I'm going to snap this thing off. I just want to be separate from it. Okay, now, many Christians I find, I come across many Christians too many times who are constantly overcome by their sin, who are constantly battling with it, unable to conquer it. Why? Because they are unwilling to sever it. Just like this. This is attached with a bungee cord. They'll break it, but they, they remain tethered to their sin, unwilling to do what is necessary to cut it off entirely. And if you do that every time, it's going to reel you back in. Now, I could play with this thing. I was trying to play with it this week, trying to get it to where I could could just like snap it. Pretty cool. But that has nothing to do with the illustration. I just thought it was cool. <laughs> but how many of us do the same thing? We kind of look like I'm going to break something off, but I remain tethered to it. And as a result, it always comes back. 
Beloved, Daniel's counsel is sound. Break off your sin completely. Sever the ties. Erect barriers. Seek God's help. Get other believers involved. Wage war for the glory of God and for your joy. Break off your sins. Put off. Now, we move to the put on by practicing righteousness. Remember that parallelism. So put off, break off your sins, put on by practicing righteousness and showing mercy to the oppressed. One of the ways that we wage war against sin isn't by just putting off, isn't by just breaking off, but by actively cultivating, actively practicing righteousness. There's a saying that nature abhors a what? Vacuum. That's true of your heart as well. Did you know that? Your heart is a vacuum of worship. You don't just stop sinning, stop obeying God. You reactively start following Jesus and honoring him and practicing righteousness. It's equally surprising that Daniel doesn't just say, break off your sins and trust in the promises of God. Think about that. You got one shot with the king. What are you going to say? Break off your sins and trust in the covenant promises of God. Trust in the gospel, we might say today. Be saved, ask for forgiveness, period. He doesn't say that. It reminds us of another time when a man of God spoke to a rich young ruler. You remember? Jesus, if you recall, Matthew 19, the young ruler asked Jesus, he says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus tell him? You know the commandments. Keep them and you will live. The ruler said, I've done all of these since I was born. I've been obeying God. And what did Jesus tell him? Do you remember? Jesus says, verse 19, uh, chapter 19 of Matthew, verse 21. Hear this. This is the words of Jesus. If you would be perfect, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see what's happening here? While on one hand, both Jesus and Daniel are exposing the true heart of the other person, at the same time, this is important because we miss this a lot, at the same time, they're showing that a heart that truly desires to honor God demonstrates that by showing mercy to the oppressed and the poor. They are both showing one and the same. A heart that is set on honoring God, on loving Him, demonstrates that heart by showing mercy to the oppressed and the poor. Why is that the case? Am I just making that up? Is that a stretch? Is that really what he means? That's exactly what he means. Why is this the case? Why does a heart like this, a heart that's impacted by the grace of God, show itself in mercy to the poor and practicing righteousness? Here's the first reason. Because the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament identifies himself with the poor and the needy. The God of the old and the new identifies himself with the poor and the needy. That's how he introduces himself. And this was radically countercultural to that day. 
Think about this. The ancient gods in ancient times, the gods of ancient societies, they didn't uh, identify with the poor and the needy and the widows. They identified themselves with the rich, the powerful, and the wealthy. So those who were wealthy, those who were rich, thought they could just get their money and go and buy God the blessings of the gods. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we read an account of Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, an adversary of Israel, the people of God. You remember what happened to Naaman? Naaman was a leper, very powerful man, very smart man, but who had an incurable disease. Naaman hears that there's a prophet in Israel that can heal him of his disease. And so he goes to Israel, he goes to the king, he has a letter from his king to the king of Israel asking them to heal him. Along with that letter, he brings a ridiculous amount of money, enough to pay 600 workers for a year and to buy a lot of land. He brings them a ridiculous amount of money and asks for this prophet to heal him. And he expects that's what's going to happen, just like that. Do you know what the king does when he gets this letter? He tears his clothes. He rips his garments in shock and awe and sorrow. Why? Because the God of Israel can't be bought by money and power. He does not identify with the rich, the wealthy, and the powerful. He cannot be manipulated by these things. That's how the other gods acted, not how the God of Israel acted. And so God brought, or Naaman brought this money thinking he could just, the king would order the prophet his healing. But that's not the way it is with the God of Israel. Amazingly, not only can he not be bought or paid off, remember I said who he identifies himself with? Here, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Verse 18. Get this. He executes justice. For who? The fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. We would call that the immigrant. He loves the immigrant, immigrant, the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Here's Psalm 68, verse 4 and 5. Psalm 68, verse 4 to 5. It says, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Verse 5. How does he introduce himself? Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Beloved, the God of the Bible identifies and introduces himself with the poor, the widows, the orphans, the strangers, the immigrants, the vulnerable, and any heart response that desires to honor God must show itself in a willingness to help them also. And a willingness to help them as well. We're going to hear two more passages and then end it with some application. Here, Job. Job was a mighty man, powerful, godly man, offered up sacrifices on behalf of his family. Here's Job's reflection on what it means to be faithful, and then we're going to hear it from Jesus. 
Now, this is striking because I want you to hear the moral obligation. Many of us like to donate to charitable causes. Charity is something that we do that is good but optional. Not so with Job and not so with the God of the Bible. Hear this. Hear from Job 31, verse 13 to 28. 31, 13 to 28. He says this. Remember all that happened to Job, and so he's interacting with his friends, trying to make sense of all that has occurred in his life. Job says this, If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes his inquiry, what am I going to say? How shall I answer him? Verse 16, if I have withheld anything, hear this, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone, my bread alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it, verse 19, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not been blessed by me, if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless. And he goes on and on and on. Verse 28, we'll skip there for time. Verse 28, Job says, if I've done any of these things, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. Think about that. Job doesn't see it as an optional but good thing he could do. He sees it as intimately tied to his faithfulness as a man of God, not optional, but obliged, obligated. Something for us to meditate on. There is a direct connection for Job between the abundance of blessings that God has given to him and his moral obligation before God to help those in need. Job knew that, and we would do well to remember that Job was not a self-made man. Everything he had was a blessing from God, meant to be used to help others in the process. So as Daniel appealed to Nebuchadnezzar to practice this kind of righteousness by showing mercy to the oppressed, by righting the wrongs done, to use his power instead to restore what was taken, to bind up the brokenhearted, Daniel appealed to him to do this. Nebuchadnezzar, unfortunately, was to learn the hard way. Now let's hear, that was from Job. Let's hear from Jesus. Let's hear it from Jesus, lest we think this is just uh, one portion. Hear how Jesus radically takes this. Now, Matthew 25, verse 31. Matthew 25, 31. This is the final judgment that we're in the context of. Jesus is talking about the final judgment at the end of the age, where he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to hear the distinguishing mark between the two, those who enter the kingdom and those who do not. Listen to this. This is a famous passage, but you maybe haven't thought about it like this. We'll skip ahead. Verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Hear this, verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, 
and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? Verse 38, and when did we see you stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you, or, in, or sick or in prison and visit you? Verse 40, the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Holy smokes. Did you see that? Did you hear those categories in there from the Old Testament? The stranger, the poor, the needy, the vulnerable. Again, we have to ask, what is going on here? What's going on? How can the Bible, I thought we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not of works. What, what's happening here? Because it seems like the two are being connected. Or, on one hand, he's telling the rich young ruler, sell everything and you'll have life. That sounds a little bit different than this kind of free grace that I just, I believe and receive and that's it. What's happening here? Here's what it is. Those who have been truly impacted by the grace of God those who have experienced God's mercy can't help but be concerned for the poor, for the immigrant, for the orphan, for the widow, for the needy. If you are truly poor in spirit, those who admit that I am spiritually bankrupt before a holy God, those who allow the gospel to shape their self-image will identify with the needy. We can't help but do so. When we see a person on the street or anywhere in our, in our building with ragged clothes, we are meant to remember that all of my righteousness is as filthy rags before a holy God, and yet in Christ he clothed me with righteousness, with his very robes. When you see somebody poor and suffering, you don't think or say, well, I pulled myself up on my own with my own two hands. I have pulled up my own bootstraps. No, because you didn't do that. It's just not true. God intervened for you. Christ pulled you up by his mighty hands from the depths of sin. You say, no, I worked hard for everything I got. No, God in his sovereignty allowed you to be born in a country where you can be free to work, and he gave you the strength, the mind, the gifts to get to where you are. It wasn't your own bootstraps that did that. It was the mercy of God, and he did that, that you might help others in need. We don't say, I'm not helping you. You did this to yourself. 
They did this to themselves. This was their own sin, their own fault. Therefore, I'm not going to help. No, we don't do that because Christ came in the flesh. He entered our brokenness and he rescued us in our sin, even though it was 100% our own fault. If I put it a little bit differently, when we see others as Christians who are poor or suffering under the weight of their sin, we realize that when we look at them, it's like looking into a mirror of our own brokenness. We can't help but be moved to compassion when we do that. Any lesser response falls short of the very mercy we have received and cherished. And so let me close with some practical admonitions, very practical. Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, break off your sins and practice righteousness. Show mercy to the oppressed. First thing, what does it look like for you to do that? What does it look like for you here and online to do that? To break off your sins and practice righteousness. Show mercy to the oppressed. The first thing we note is it'll be costly. It would have been very costly for Nebuchadnezzar to obey this. Very costly. Perhaps you begin by recognizing the wealth you have the house that you have, the status you have, the position you have that you are in, the things that you own, the time you have. Maybe you say, I don't have a lot of things. All I have is time. The time you have, the strength you have. Start by recognizing that all of that is a gift from God. Now, I think we all readily admit that, don't we? Yes, all I have is from God. It's all a gift. Most of us acknowledge that readily, but fewer would go on to be like Job or like what Daniel says. Fewer would leverage those assets and influence to practice righteousness. The assets you own, think about this, whoever you are, whatever assets, we all have them, we all have different degrees. The things you own, the assets you have, are not primarily given to you by God. They are not given to you primarily to have comfortable homes, to have lots of free time to do as you please, to have easy, comfortable retirements, lavish clothes, vacations, or other niceties. They are given to you to steward as agents of mercy to practice righteousness and advance the gospel. Now, I know that's going to rub all of us wrong. And maybe some of you are listening online or you're here thinking, there's a balance though, right? Can't you balance that? I could balance that, but I'm going to let it sit and rub. I don't think our culture is one that needs to be told to play a little bit more, to indulge in a little more comfort. So I'm just going to let it rub and jar against your heart and the spirit work there without balancing it today. We need to hear God's call to Nebuchadnezzar and to us. Practice righteousness. Show mercy to the oppressed in our community and in our church. Immediately, what does it look like here? I, I released a series of three videos. The third one was meant to call us to be prepared for the potential impact of the coronavirus in our community. There may be some in our church who lose their jobs 
for a season, who go without money because the tourist industry is impacted. Be prepared to give of yourselves above and beyond your means to help those in our body who have lost their jobs. Be gearing up for that. Practice righteousness. That's what it looks like. Show mercy to the oppressed. If I had time, I could run this through the New Testament, through all the grids, and and help us to see more how the New Testament, the early Christians did this. Be prepared for that. Number two, what else does this look like? Business owners, if you're a business owner, I don't know what it looks like in your business, or if you have influence in your business. Be committed to paying fair and livable wages to your employees. Be committed to paying fair and livable wages. It is a shame that massive companies with millions and billions of dollars, I'm not saying anybody here is like that, but in general, pay their employees the bare minimum while they live in luxury. Maybe you're a landlord. In a community where housing is the largest need, do you charge as much as you can just because you can? Even if you don't need it? Show mercy, mercy to the oppressed. Whatever your season and position, I urge you, the third part, prayerfully prayerfully examine all that you have. Take inventory of what you own. Maybe you're not a business owner. Maybe you're not uh, a landlord. But you have something. You have something. You have assets. Take stock. Take inventory. What do you have? What do you own? What has God given to you, rather? And then look around for needs. Then survey the land for needs. Start with your ohana first, your first ohana, your your God-given in this providence, Ohana. And then look to our church, and then beyond our church, and you will find there are many needs that exist. Therefore, let me close with verse 27. Therefore, O Kahului Baptist Church, let my counsel be acceptable to you, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the free offer of grace in Christ, that you loved us, that you died for our sins when we were weak, poor, needy, and oppressed. And you came and you set us free. You proclaimed liberty to the captives. The blind saw, the lame walked. And you still proclaim liberty to the captives. We thank you for that. May you transform us, transform us into a generous people, into a people whose heart is moved for those who are suffering or oppressed. And may all of us, Father, May all of us leverage the assets you have given to us to love one another in word and in deed, that the gospel might go forth to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now is a time of response.
Your first response, let it be pray, pray to God. Go home, think about the things we said, think about how this might apply to you. And then next, or in addition to that, let us sing a song of response. If you'd like prayer for or about anything, I'm going to be in this room to my right and your left. I'd love to pray with you and for you. God bless.